Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh-huh. All right. We're gonna freeze this. It is my true calling. <laughs> um, are we ready? We're ready. Wonderful. Taking ship, a guided cruise through Dumbest Timeline America. I'm Maggie Moore, your trusted anchor, and I'm flanked this week by both of my favorite co-hosts, Frank Spring and Ellie Jacobs. Uh, I was going to try to come up with a snappier intro, but honestly, I can't because I'm very hungover. Yes, and that's a good place to be, probably. Uh, this is the part of the intro where we beg everybody to subscribe to the show and rate us. Leaving comments, both positive and negative, help others find the show or could importantly deter them from listening, depending on your comment. Either way, you're doing some good for this world. Keep it up. Good for you. That's a very nice way of putting it, but I don't beg anyone. I challenge you. I dare you to subscribe to this show. Yeah. Subscribe to us, you cowards. Honestly, if you want to show that you're a good American or a good person, you'll subscribe. And get two of your friends to do the same thing. Uh, Also, the more listeners and reviews we have, the more likely we are to continue getting some really high-quality guests, which is what you really want so you don't have to listen to the three of us blather on on a regular basis. And while you're leaving your comments, you can also flip over to that cesspool, toxic, dump, waste fire of Twitter and follow us at @takingship, And that's ship with a P as in photon. You can follow me at Ellie Jacobs, Maggie at MaggieM012, and Frank at Frank Spring. Thinking of dumpster fire, uh, Frank, we can't help but wonder what is going on with Brexit this week. Well, you'll be pleased to know that the present status is extremely clear. Uh, it is deeply fucked up uh yeah things are things so the the basic facts of this we can get into how we got here and where we might go pretty quickly but the basic facts of it are uh britain is now scheduled to crash out of the eu this coming friday april 12th and i love just how quick one of my favorite features of brexit has been uh how close they have gotten to the edge uh, to the point that you're just like, oh, yeah, like this major geopolitical event might or might not happen at the end of the week, as if you were like trying to nail down coffee with someone. They're like, yeah, I think we've roughly got coffee. We might have a coffee scheduled this Friday. Our calendar the schedule's a little in flux. And also uh, we might crash out of a, uh, of a, of a multi-state uh, economic and political union uh, that has been the vision of European states, uh, you know, statecraft uh, for the last uh, 70 years. So, you know, that could happen on Friday. Who's to say? Who's to, who, uh, cer- certainly no, certainly, uh, certainly not uh, Prime Minister Theresa May, uh, Labor Party leader Jeremy Corbyn, or anyone from the EU. Is Don't ask them. They Prime just Minister, work here. Didn't she like volunteer to step aside if they voted for her plan for the fourth? Has she got? She's gotten more votes each time she's brought the same plan forward, right? That's right. And if she brings it forward on the same schedule uh, for uh, on the same schedule at the same interval, she should have this thing passed by November. Hey. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, she couldn't even get people to agree to fire her. Oh, man. Honestly, right there, that's impressive as shit to me. That is deeply impressive. I know that that is a deeply impressive. Because getting people to agree to fire you, not the hardest thing in the world. I think we can all agree. Particularly when you have been wildly incompetent and bad at your job. Like, yes, she, like, been, there's no redeeming aspect to her, her, her premiership. No, one of the things that's been really interesting has been Throughout this debacle, her personal numbers have been have have stayed largely stable. People have it's it's been a sort of fascinating thing. 
that uh, I think was was properly highlighted uh, by a friend of the podcast, friend of our hearts, uh, Marcus Roberts, who uh, very re- has, has sort of kept a weather eye on this. That her person, that May's uh, Theresa May's personal numbers seem to have been again kind of impervious to the fact that the you know both parties in Britain are are uh, are you know are, are significant are, are quite unpopular. The handling of Brexit has been unpopular, uh, but her personal numbers are now are now starting to slump as well and starting to slump significantly. What are her personal? Yeah, numbers? I was just going to ask. You know, like, is it they're, they're not, she's, she's, then... it's, yeah, she's pretty <laughs> she's pretty deep. She's pretty deeply underwater. Uh, and this is, mm-hmm. I haven't seen the, the numbers from this week, but the slide started a couple of weeks ago and it was like, it, for a lot, it, the, the sort of perception here, I think, and again, this is, this is uh, Roberts's assumption, analysis and I think he's right, is that there was a certain degree of sympathy for her, right? Like the idea was she didn't, she was a Remainer, she didn't vote for Brexit, she didn't campaign for Brexit, uh, she wasn't prime minister when the vote happened. Uh, but nonetheless, she she has been charged with executing this thing, and as a result, uh, and she's doing the very best she can. And people felt sort of sympathetic to her for that reason. And and I don't think that's entirely unreasonable. And it also speaks to some conceptions in British politics. About, yes, it's very British. It is very British, right? Like you know, I and mean, there is a kind of like there's a certain stiff upper upper lip element to it. Like, well, we've just got to get through it, and she's the person who's going to do it. That has like her handling of this has clearly caused it to to fall apart. And I think, and I speak under correction, Brits. Um, you know, come, come at me, Brits. Uh, but I speak under correction here. But I think it really started to slide when she went on uh, when she went when she did a televised address, uh, basically rubbishing Parliament for not having voted for her compromise. Uh, that that really that that was a bad look, and it, it wasn't sort of seen as being kind of you know you know uh, you know um, dignified and, and so forth. So her numbers are sliding, everyone's numbers are sliding. This thing is is historic. Like this is a, a, a in the history of Britain, this is as unpopular a political event. Uh, you know, as we have seen, uh, you know, since uh, probably, uh, you know, w- one of the protracted succession wars of the 13th century. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's not like, great. Well, but then I think what's important for me to always keep in mind when thinking about Brexit or like what this means then for for the UK is that like the, the terms of history are just so much different. Like there's folks on the West Coast that to borrow a line from Eddie Izzard say this building was built over 50 years ago that like Americans <laughs> just think about history really differently. Um, yeah. But like, you know, um, thinking about then what a hard crash exit, I guess, could actually mean is like, well, Britain had a good run, but they're yeah. over <laughs> clearly. Mm-hmm. But okay. when we say like the crash exit, what does that actually, what would that look like? Like, what does that mean in like um, a relatively easy to understand terms? Sure. Very layman's. It's a great, it, that's a great question. Uh, if you ask, if you ask various people in the in the Conservative Party, uh, Conservative and Unionist Party of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, they'll tell you different things. There is, there, but I, but there is, there are people in the Conservative Party, Brexiteers, who will say that crash out is no big deal. But the general consent, but the general notion here is Britain severs all of its institutional relationships with the European Union, full stop, uh, and all of the uh, you know movement of people, movement of goods. Uh, all of it has to be renegotiated essentially from scratch, uh, as if Britain were just, were completely were a sovereign country completely unrelated to the EU, with which of course was countries. The, which yeah, with individual right. countries, which which was the entire point of this whole exercise. Or they could renegotiate with the EU as a block, but if they did, then but if they did, they, you know, they, this would be this would be them operating a little bit like the U.S. in the sense that like we have deals with individual countries and also with the European Union. Um, so there's a there's a there are different ways there are a couple of different ways to approach this. The most important, but the relevant point here is the EU, because Britain has belonged to the has belonged to the uh, to the EU for so long, 
the EU, it takes on a lot of basic functions of government to do with how goods are produced and gotten to market. And that seems pretty dry, except for the fact that that includes things like food inspections, drug inspections, right? Like this is pretty basic fundamental stuff. And as a result, um, there was a, one of the most damning things I think about this entire project was, uh, you know, was a finding a couple of, was a finding last year that in order to have prepared the kind of in regulatory regime that they would need in order that the Brits would need in order to be able to replace the EU, they would have start, they would have had to have started before the Brexit vote took place. It's probably a three or four year job to build all the, to build all the British agencies that would be needed to do what the European Union has done. Uh, they haven't built any of them, as far as we can tell. And I know that there are some civil servants who have been working extremely hard on trying to get something up and running that would work, but they have not been, I think, especially they've been especially well led on this, uh, or given given a lot of resources or a lot of room to run. So the fear here is, if Britain crashes out, mm-hmm. that there, you know, there could be there, there could be a protracted period with uneven access to goods. Uh, which you know is, is 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 not perhaps the end of the world, but is an odd but is an odd thing to see in a fully developed country, uh, you know, in a rich country in the 21st century to let not, not have you know oranges or whatever. Um, but the other thing that is much more the much more concerning is suddenly all of the way all of the smoothness and all the predictability with which Britain trades grinds to an absolute halt, comes to an end, and Britain and and Brexit is already this whole the uncertainty itself is already costing them hundreds of millions hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. a week, if not a day. So you could look at it. My final point here is you could be looking at a decline in the, the British. The pound will almost certainly fall. British housing prices would, would fall. Uh, unemployment could take a hit. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it would be. I mean, it, it could pre- it could precipitate its own recession in the UK and in the and in the EU, which could also land on these shores. Mm-hmm. And at yeah. this point, at, at this point, there's no chance of another referendum. There is a chance of another referendum. It's a long shot, but what's happening now is this. So Theresa May essentially late last week was forced to concede that she could not get... She has a, Again, she has a majority in Parliament. The Conservative Party, uh, with a supply and confidence deal with the, uh, uh, with the uh, de- uh, Democratic uh, Unionist from Ulster, uh, Democratic Unionist Party, uh, are with, their, with that agreement, they can pass anything they choose to, not by a lot, but they can. Uh, but, they all, all, but, she ha- but, her, but all of her party has to vote together. Uh, that has not happened yet, and uh, last week she conceded essentially that there is no way that she, the leader of her own party, can get her party to vote for her own proposal. Uh, so she has now uh, entered after you know, w- you know weeks, months, indeed years of trying. So she has now entered into negotiations with the Labour Party to see if the Labour Party uh, they can broker some kind of deal that the Labour Party, along with portions of the Conservative Party, will support. Uh, and they, that's those those conversations are ongoing. They've been going on for a couple of days. They have failed so far. She has asked the EU for an extension on Brexit until June thirtieth, uh, which per, certain portions of the EU are inclined to get. The EU doesn't want a lot of the EU doesn't want this crash out. They are quite against it uh, because it would be extremely disruptive for them. Britain is a major trading partner, and they'd like for this to happen in an orderly way. Uh, so uh, the uh, you know the president of the European Council, uh, forgive me if I have botched his title. There, uh, European and Brit fans, uh, Tusk uh, is asking for is suggesting that rather than uh, rather than extending Brexit until June thirtieth, that Brexit could be extended a full year uh, to take the pressure off of negotiations. But there, the Europeans are in kind of a tough spot because they had previously said we will grant extensions to the Brexit process. But only if it looks like Brit- only if it looks like Britain is going to start proposing something new or different. We're not just going to keep extending it for the sake of extending it because the Brits can't get their act together. Sooner or later, something has to happen here. 
Um, so it is possible they might get a delay until June 30th. Uh, but the uh, um, European Parliament, the European, excuse me, uh, the EU uh, leadership is meeting on Wednesday, I think it is, uh, to discuss what to do about this. Uh, it's possible they will grant an extension. It's possible they won't. You have to have a unanimous agreement uh, for uh, for there to be an extension. And there are certain there are some members of the European Union, France particularly, the ancient enemy, um, France in blood particular, blood enemy, the blood enemy of the Brits. There are some of them, are, particularly the French, who are just saying, "Listen, we've given these people as much time as they." As much time as they, you know, as much time as we can here, they had, you know, years and then another extension to work this thing out, uh, and they they can't they can't pull it off. So screw them. Shocking that the French want to be dicks. That the French, so the, the, the French are going to find some way to do yeah. down. These um, two countries are going to go down. These two countries are going to go down with their hands around each other's throats. It's going to be like absolutely, that and we're watching it happen right yeah, now. Yeah, it's happening right now. So the Definitely president, in political and policy terms, kicking the can down the road is always a sound strategy. It usually yeah, it, almost it always works out. It's the preferred strategy usually, and, and, and so I think my guess, if I had to bet, I would say that that's probably what's going to happen here, that this week will end inconclusively, just like every other week since this vote has happened. Um, the present negotiating point, by the way, is a customs union that would allow, I mean, and, the, and I guess the point there is Britain would remain in a customs union with the EU, which would allow for freer movement of goods, right? Like that's kind of, that's, that's, where, what, that's where labor has ended up as their position. There are parts of the conservative party that are vigorously and viciously against that because they see it as remaining in the EU, right? Their whole thing is we want total independence from these people. Um, so labor's present position, as I understand it, and there are a lot of people affiliated with labor who do not understand it, uh, and are in a better position to know is, you know, they're pushing for a customs union and stronger links with the EU. If that fails, they'll try and push for another referendum to your earlier point, Ellie, but they don't have the votes to call for a second referendum. They've tried themselves and it just, it doesn't, they don't have the numbers. Um, so we'll, you know, if they can't agree a customs union, I mean, I would say there is a chance that they crash out this week. I think it's much more likely that this week ends inconclusively and we kick the can down to June 30th. So then our like regular everyday Brits feeling any sort of panic about this or do they for the most part are they sort of like this is so confusing like we don't really know what's going on or like what do people actually think about it the numbers suggest that what they feel right now is disgust uh, the, the, the highest same, number, the same, um, the same. same. I mean and, and who could blame them right like the highest port like the the thing if you go through the numbers again and I know there are folks listening to this podcast who are you know who live and breathe this so please, please get in touch if I'm off base here uh, but these single genuine, like the, the one thing about which every Brit appears to be able to agree in this issue on which no one has ever been able to agree on anything uh, is that this is a national disgrace. Uh, the national disgrace numbers are very high. If you were running national disgrace for prime minister right now, we would win in a landslide. It's so um, British too. Like, oh, what a disgrace. Disgrace, exactly. Like this is, I mean, the national disgrace numbers are in the high 80s or low 90s. People are just furious disgusted and ashamed but also like they're Which, honestly and, like, saying, embarrassed classic british i know that's exactly right <laughs> like it just is oh this whole thing like i mean this is a this is a political like political clusterfucks are not unknown uh, you know outside of britain uh but this one is a this is a particularly british clusterfuck you know like it you know honestly like it should be served with a decent uh with a decent banger uh, and some brown sauce. Like it is just this is this is like classic British fuck up from start to finish. Are there numbers that suggest the referendum will be in like conclusive, conclusive? Like because the referendum, the first referendum to leave was you know by millimeters. Are there numbers that suggest if they were to do it again, the stay would have a substantial incre increase, or was it still be like in the margins? 
So the first one, the first referendum was there. There is the first referendum was not as close as it is sometimes made out to have been. Uh, it was it was not a it was not a landslide by any stretch of the imagination, but it was not a it was not a knife's edge thing. Leave one pretty noticeably uh, by the you know and in the end and all, what would happen in a second referendum? There's a good chance Leave would win again. Uh, there's and this is one of the kind of one of the the sort of myths about the way this about the way the Brexit has worked that I, I think is worth pushing back on is the idea that if there were a second referendum, Brexit has gone so badly uh, that uh, you know that that, that uh, you know undoing the referendum would win in a landslide. There's no guarantee of that. Actually, uh, Leave is still crash out is still the most popular option on the table right now. It now is? everything would yeah. Every, but again, you're talking about a that is still a minority position. But I think partly this is like we might as well get the hell on with it. Mm, that makes sense. Like, like it's been dragging on for too long. Yeah, Just if we're gonna do if, if we're gonna do it, that's we fair. should do it. Yeah, and that's that right. Like it's hard to it's hard to get behind, but like I can see that everything would depend on what the options were, right? Like you could have a uh, do, do we crash out or do we absolutely stay or do we, or, you know, or do we just forget this thing has ever happened? Right. Like that would produce one result as opposed to, you know, do we crash out? Do we, uh, have some kind of, do we have some, do we have the prime minister's deal, which can't pass parliament, but you take it to a plebiscite, uh, you know, as two, you have a three option, one crash out prime minister's deal, uh, or we just forget this thing ever happened. Um, in that case, the compromise might win who the hell knows, there's just no there's there's no prediction here on this. Dumpster fire check. Yeah, yeah. honestly. Yeah. So get your popcorn ready for this thing. It is pot. So of the of the three possibilities, there could be a negotiated deal uh, with uh, between uh, between uh, May's government and Labor on a customs union or something else. I I don't know how likely that is, but it could happen. Um, we could have a crash out by the end of the uh, by the end of the week, or we could have this thing kick down the kick down the line. So it could succeed fail or uh, or be kicked down the road but here's the thing i would i would leave everyone with on this the thing that has amazed me most about brexit has been whenever we have thought we understood what the options were like these are the all the terrible options on the table so we at least have a sense of how bad this might get they have found a secret worse option that no one could have possibly predicted um, so that is so yeah exactly classic so that's that's very much on the table for this as well i feel like i've had those kinds of conversations when i've tried to get out of a relationship somehow yeah. like some new that's exactly what this is happened. right like oh there's a secret worse option like how did you how did you make it like that no this is terrible yes that's yeah. exactly what this feels like to me yeah. um i think my last question then is what does this mean for the east india company you know this is a, that that's a that, that's the question that's on everyone's mind i'm asked that constantly <laughs> what of what of the east india company you, you hear it mags you hear it more and more the east india company how, how well how much how much that well they're doing um, how much I we love Pirates of Caribbean. Don't we Caribbean. love don't we love them, folks? What does this um, mean for Orlando's blue livelihood? I need to know. I would say that was, if I may say, the West India Company. Uh, as for the East India Company, uh, <laughs> profits are up, costs are down. The future of the East India Company has never been brighter. I will now Amazing. take your questions. Wonderful. Just want to make sure that that old brand is, you know. Yeah, that's exactly making, right. Taking you know, out like bandits, you know. It's a cl- it's a classic, you know. You when you think buy, about the, cl- you can't buy brand reputation. No, that's exactly right. When you think of the old ones, you know, you know, with the, you know, the sort of the brands that have stood the test of time, you know, uh, Bethlehem Steel, mm-hmm. uh, for example, <laughs> the East India Company, uh, Western Union Telegram, Studebaker, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. These are the ones. They'll see us through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. What else? 
Let's go back here. I mean, let, let's 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 come to this side of the Atlantic briefly, uh, where our where our own to our own dumpster going, fire, to our own dumpster fire, where, to where where our own politics is going extremely well. Uh, let's have a quick. Uh, shall we do a quick whip round of uh, of where the uh, of where the uh, the uh, the presidential is? Yeah, yeah let's I, I would start by just saying everybody should go back and listen to our live our live show when we did this tournament style. Um, a, you'll learn a lot. You'll actually know who all the candidates are, but more importantly. We called a lot of this shit right. It's because I'm a bruja. I'm a witch. So that's, right. you know, how that got done. Right. And your oracle abilities are increased depending on how hungover you are. <laughs> oh, man. Right so now, right now, right now Maggie is drawing up lottery tickets. <laughs> 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 There's nothing I can do. The sun is so loud. The sun was so loud this morning. Oh my god! All right, let's dispense anyway. some. Let's dispense some justice. Uh, let's do a whip around for each of us. Like we, we all have a thing. Obviously, there's an entire cottage industry of people talking endlessly about the Democratic primary. Uh, we are going to contain ourselves to one thing that we think is uh, is of interest, especially now that the Q1 numbers, the Q1 fundraising numbers are are in for most of the candidates. Uh, so we've each we've each got our thing that we want to talk about in the Democratic Party primary, uh, and we will start with we, we'll have we'll start with a bracing dose of condemnation and hatred from the inimitable Ellie Jacobs. See, with that intro, I was almost convinced you were going to Maggie, but okay. <laughs> Who's to say? It could have been either of us, or he could have gone for himself. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Uh, we'll start with a bracing dose of hatred from me. So I, I know we're supposed to have only one thing. Um, I'm going to have like one and a half. The half being, and he doesn't even merit a half, is Cory Booker is still not let let known what his fundraising numbers were because and i don't know what's taking so long it shouldn't be that hard to count to 10 like he raised 10 dollars. just say it i think what's the robbing our audience of this moment is that they can't see the over-the-top eye rolls that are happening <laughs> on other people's cameras but it's important for people to I'm not know rolling my eyes. i'm overjoyed for those of you who had for those of you who had anything other than ellie jacobs starting this by just coming down like a ton of bricks on cory booker i invite you to listen to the totality of this podcast <laughs> i have been nothing if not consistent about my disdain for cory booker speaking of old brands that is very on brand for you that is, so, that is extremely like, on brand <laughs> yeah I would, I would say the, the thing that really um, ha- has gotten me was obviously there was a ton of buildup about Beto O'Rourke, and I have remained firm that a well-funded armadillo would have come within five points of Ted Cruz in Texas. So I've never been a huge fan of understanding what the, the, the phenomenon that is Beto O'Rourke is. But he raised $9.4 million in 18 days. But the reality is he's raised $3.3 million in 17 days. Uh, because let's just say he did not have a great launch. Uh, he had a Vanity Fair cover story, which ordinarily would suggest that you are the, you know, the princeling in waiting, uh, but it was pretty much downhill from the photo shoot, I would say. Um, the photo shoot being a replica of a Vanity Fair cover of Ronald Reagan, uh, and the cover quote was bad, the article, uh, and everybody should go back and uh, read uh, Commodore Jason Stanford's annotated copy of the Vanity Fair article uh, because it gets to the heart of a lot of the issues of Beto O'Rourke and also uh, points to a lot of the reasons why his campaign faltered so poorly right outside, right out the gate. Sure, he was able to get huge crowds, but stumbling over itself over and over and over again is really not a way to, to win a primary, uh, particularly one like this where staff is so vital because there are just so many fucking candidates running. Uh, so my big thing is just uh, wither Beto after day three, essentially. 
It's a legit question. I was talking to uh, one of his major donors from 2018, uh, and and uh, you know, to the extent that this person was speaking for himself, uh, and, uh, I mean, he was obviously speaking for himself. I, you know, I, he was he also had was meant was representing that there were a lot of other donors who shared this view. I can't speak to that one way or the other, but at least in the opinion of, the, of that major donor, they were really, really disappointed in the way that he rolled out his candidacy. I mean, he didn't have a campaign manager until like day two. Yeah, I mean, he's gay. So, and, and, and his hire was, you know, what, I mean, his hire was gentleman. Oh, phenomenal. A great hire. Very, a, very, yeah, a very reasonable hire, someone that would, would certainly be, you know, top of the list for anyone, that, for, you know, any, anyone running for president. So, you know, he's done some things right, but the sense was he did not spend his time off between the Senate race and his declaration well, and that his, uh, and that his rollout was, was poor. Uh, and and does not seem to be improving. So I get the sense there's there's some disquiet amongst even his donor base people. And this guy was was in was into him. Uh, I get and, and I get the not, sense that uh, no longer. Again, going back to the armadillo and Ted Cruz, but th- I get the sense that a lot of people thought that while Beto O'Rourke was on his road tour or whatever else, there were strategy calls and memos being written and staff being hired, sort of going on in the background. And you know, day one would happen and he would have a fully formed campaign. While the reality is, is that Beto O'Rourke is Beto O'Rourke and he was doing nothing but driving around and writing bad poetry. Yeah. Also, like the the rollout to me is relatively emblematic of like a not very well thought out bid. Like just like people seem to love me. Yeah. And like maybe I should just do that. Well, and like that, that's, a terrible that's what reason he said. Like that, that was that yeah. was the quote. Which is crazy. Um, the other thing that to your armadillo point, which like mwah, beautiful, love it. Um, is I saw a joke on Twitter when Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson broke up um, by, uh, that was something to the effect of like, um, did you really think he was funny or was the guy just tall? Sort of alluding to like, you think that someone's attractive when actually they're just tall. Like with Beto, it's like, did you really like Beto O'Rourke or is he just tall? Like, is, this, is it just the guy that's running against Ted Cruz or do you actually like Beto O'Rourke? Like were people excited that he could have lost? that Ted Cruz would be unseated or do they really like Beto? Eh, I think we're learning that folks just really wanted Ted Cruz to lose. There's truth to this. I mean, Beto's like, he's raised a lot of money. He has a, he has the effect he has on crowds. We, I mean, we, we know this, like this is, this is jumping on all those jumping on counters. Exactly. This is a, this is a real, like this is a real candidacy. That fucking launch video. God damn this. Yeah, no, it wasn't good. This is a real candidacy, whether we, you know, whether we want it to be or not. Uh, But there is all presidential candidates, learn and grow none of them very none of them are perfect coming out of the gate uh obama's candidacy was not great at the front end uh but he learned right like this is the thing about successful presidential candidates the arguable exception here being donald trump who was coming in with much with with forces greater than any of us could control uh, but generally speaking uh, successful presidential candidates they learn they learn fast and they and they are uh and the thing that i particularly admired about obama back in 2007 is when he was just starting off and, and his campaign was still coming together and he was still making mistakes on the road and still like his question was always, what could I be doing better? How can I be he, like, he was a relentlessly right. self-improving candidate. Is- he, was, he was adaptive and a relentlessly self-improving candidate. There is a real question amongst people who like Beto, much less people who don't about uh, of whether this guy thinks he's already there, whether he's just like, Nope, this is it, man, I've got it. And this is what people want. And if that's the case, this is not going to be a successful candidacy and may not even be a long one. I, I yeah. think what we've seen is suggesting that that's the case. Um, also, that it lends itself pretty well, I think, as a good segue into mine, if folks don't mind. Do it. Um, I think, so, well, Frank, I mean, the, the point that you were making about um, what could I be doing better, what could I learn, I think, um, is the approach and the attitude that I really wish Joe Biden was taking. Technically, technically, Biden 
Biden is not, uh, you know, he was in the tournament, he was in the bracket. So I feel like it's, it's worth talking about. Um, so for folks who uh, are unfamiliar, um, several women have uh, come forward and said that, um, that, that Joe Biden has made them uncomfortable uh, with his uh, tactile form of uh, politicking. Um, started with Lucy Flores, who released a statement. Uh, Lucy Flores uh, is in the state assembly in Nevada. She was running for a lieutenant governor, I believe. Um, yeah, she, was, she was a delegate for Bernie. Yes, thank you. Uh, when she um, when she mentioned that Joe Biden, you know, rubbed her shoulders and kissed her head in a way that made her feel very uncomfortable, um, and. I don't know if I have too many unique things to say about it. I honestly think that uh, Claire Malone on the 538 podcast did a lot of good outlining um, to the topic itself um, that, you know, Flores' comments as well as the other women who have come forward um, have, and Lucy specifically, were very intentional about how she framed the issue at hand, which is it was overly paternalistic and it felt very inappropriate and awkward, a woman running for a lieutenant governor to get a kiss on the head. Um, we know that, like, she's not saying that um, she was attacked. She's not saying that she was assaulted. What she's saying is that it felt very familiar and very friendly uh, and a, at a time uh, that that kind of touch is not necessarily something that you would do to a male candidate. Um, the point that Claire Malone made that I have thought about a lot, especially was that there's this perception that access to women's bodies um, is just much more public than it is for other folks. So that um, after a first time that you meet someone, uh, um, men often shake other men's hands, men often than women, um, or think that they can. So this idea, like anal setting, that I should be okay with, or women should be okay with being hugged, is strange to me. Is it because... I don't know if power play about like, you know, who gets a handshake and who doesn't, but that this, this access to women's bodies and women's bodies being much more public um, is what is the conversation that I would like to have uh, around Biden, um, which, you know, it's less, it's more of like using Biden as a prism to, to talk about this. Um, it is what I think is, is more useful than actually trying to get into like if intentions matter or whatever. Um, so I'm, interested then to see how this goes for Biden because I really felt like he bungled the video that it would have been really easy to say like I'm learning um you know I like I acted in this way and it was inappropriate I apologize here is what I have learned and here is what I'm going to do going forward it is so hard for him to say that like <laughs> uh it's also been really hard sad, um, to watch I just want to like I want him to get better comms like I think his staff should be managing the situation better and it's just not going very well um so yeah it was the, the statement was just really strange uh, and i wish you had a better ad about it yeah i mean some of it is uh you know the point that you made when you started the whole thing that he do- isn't actually running he doesn't actually have a campaign if he was actually running and actually had a campaign this would have been a whole different conversation we were having over the last two weeks they would have been playing offense rather than catching up i mean that's from a political perspective not from like you know, the emotional, societal, cultural perspective. Um, I think, you know, and and we said this at the live show. I mean, this was literally something that we said as a negative about him. Exactly. The way Joe Biden touches people. Um, And that it's going to come up. And I'm then so surprised they knew this was going to come up and they bungled it anyway. I'm like, you had to have seen this coming. Well, I think, you know, I I think, I think what a lot of it boils down to, I mean, it's the same thing like um, when Bill Clinton was doing the media tour around the novel that he wrote with James Patterson, he did a 
he did uh, the, the Colbert report. He did the Colbert report and he completely bungled a response about Monica Lewinsky. Just couldn't admit fault or have learned from right. it or anything. And, and I think this gets to a point about age. And yeah. some of these folks are just too old to say, I'm sorry, I'm learning. They just, they're incapable of doing it. And part of me says, okay, if you're at that stage where you're, that, where you're like that, you can't play the game anymore. Because that, does, that means you're no longer an active participant. You're no longer adapting and learning and changing. You're no longer an active participant. You're kind of just, I'm better than the whole game. And you're just going to have, like, everybody should just fall in line with my opinions. Um, and, and that, God love Joe Biden and his family and everything else and everything he's done. But there is a, uh, you know, in the conversations I've had with people, and it should be said, Joe Biden did win our tournament. Um, but the conversations I've been having with people and just kind of in my own thinking, um, is he in the best position to beat Donald Trump in 2020? Very possibly. Could he have won in 2016? Very possibly. Should he be running in 2020? No. Yeah. He's not a, he's, he's not a 2020 candidate. He's, he's not, he's an, he's anachronistic. He's not, and he's, he'd better serve himself and his legacy to stay out and play the, play the role of Kingmaker. I totally agree. And I feel like to your point about, um, it's either like my way or the high, like I'm just too old to like change my opinions, um, is what is more disqualifying Yeah. than, than the harm done itself in a way. Like, uh, if you are unwilling to um, to continue to grow, you do not deserve this job, and that's just a fact. Yeah, um, and, and the thing yeah. that concerns me, sir, forgive me for interrupting. The thing that concerns me is shortly after his statement, he went out and gave a gave went out and gave a major speech, in parts of which were scripted to make jokes about this issue. Yeah, it and was that, weird and gross. And that was very, and that I think to a certain degree shows the extent to which maybe Biden himself hasn't learned the right lessons from this and to the extent to which he his political his political sense and the sense of the people around him is that that is a deliberate that i mean the decision to make jokes about it in the speech that he gave afterward uh was a deliberate decision uh to aim at a a portion of his like what his constituency is who are older and see these concerns as being illegitimate as being performative wokeness or whatever right. and um, i would back that this up this is part of like the democratic party is going through a generational thing mm-hmm. um and that whole like that that element of an older candidate appealing to an older electorate that just doesn't take this shit seriously that a that could be winning like that i mean this the, like that could ultimately be the view that prevails it's 100 percent possible if that happens mm-hmm. uh, but even so that this is playing out it's just example of the fact that like we are going like the, the party is going through something grim and generational as opposed to the republican party which kind of decided it just wasn't doing that shit yeah <laughs> it was like nope actually we're just aging out of existence right and all of the stuff they have done has been yes it has been about protecting the interests of a you know protecting the interests of the mega wealthy but that has also represented a generational uh, transfer of power and wealth from the young and, and from the young and even the middle aged to the to the old, right? The Republican Party is just out of the business of youth and out of the business of thinking about the future. The Democratic Party is going through a much more painful and galvanic process as we figure out how we transition from being genuinely a party of the future, which I think at some level is healthy. I just wish it were taking place in less dire circumstances. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't really have much to add. I mean, just you know, from what you were just saying, anecdotally, conversations I've had with I've had with people over the last two weeks. Uh, plus, I mean, even going further back about Joe Biden, uh, there is absolutely a generational divide on opinion on it. But uh, Frank, what's your hot take? Oh, sorry, Maggie. Um, 
I would say no, like there, def- like there definitely is a generational divide. What I really, really hated about his statement is when he said like, I'm, I'm learning, like, you know, times have clearly changed that this kind of behavior is no longer okay. That's not necessarily true. I would argue that like 50 years ago, Lewin still didn't want to be touched and kissed. Like the times haven't changed. It's just, we've gotten less and less quiet about it. Um, so our tolerance has always been like, is maybe lower, um, because we don't have to tolerate it anymore. So like, I think the excuse of that generational divide of just like, it was fine back then. I'm like, no, yeah. it wasn't. It was never asked. Yeah, yeah. You know, slap um, the secretary on the ass thing. Not all- exactly. <laughs> it's like the times, like we, we always felt some type of way about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or like people always felt some type of way about it. We just were, we're quieter. So, but yes. Okay. So that is then the final word on Joe Biden, Frank. Do you have a steaming pile of rage or a regular pile that you'd like to share with us? I do have. I do. And it's, this is going to be a quick one. One of the, thing, one of the narratives that came out of uh, the, Q, the Q1 fundraising numbers for all the candidates uh, first quarter uh, was the way that I found fascinating is the way that both in media and then in uh, the quote unquote discourse – uh, you know, and, and of course, we must always take a moment to respect the discourse. Uh, the discourse. That, the discourse, right? That that Kamala Harris, especially when Pete, it's on Twitter, especially when it's on Twitter, that is the most respectable discourse of all. That Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg were set against each other, which I thought was absolutely fascinating, and also in retrospect, kind of predictable. Uh, so Kamala's number for Q1 was uh, was twelve million dollars, a very respectable haul in a Democratic Party field of you know charitably fifty candidates. Uh, there, there may be more now. You know, I think at one point uh, we all on this podcast accidentally filed paperwork. So there's everyone is running for office. Uh, Pete Buttigieg's number for Q1 was seven million. Q1 of the number uh, Q1 of the year before the election is generally speaking a pretty good assessment of who already has an existing audience, existing uh, you know an existing audience, an existing constituency, and an existing fundraising machine. So if you had said, you know, a year ago. That at the end of Q1, the candidate who would have the largest, the, you know, the biggest machine, the biggest name recognition, the biggest fundraising capacity was Bernie Sanders. That would not have come across as a surprise because he's run for president before. Uh, so he's because he's run for president before. If uh, you know, if you'd said Kamala Harris would also have a really big, so he raised eighteen million. The Kamala Harris would have a very respectable, would have a very respectable showing. That would not come as a surprise either. She's a senator from a major, from a you know, from our from our biggest state. Uh, the when she lives in, uh, or she's from the area where uh, that that funds most of the Democratic Party. That's Northern California. Uh, she's you know hugely popular and so forth. Uh, so that like so if you'd said Kamala Harris was going to have a good was going to have a good figure, uh, that too would not be surprising. And so on down the line. The big surprise of Q1 was Pete, right? If you'd said, you know, Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, you know, all, you know, all 37 years of him, uh, you know, is going to, is going to post a very respectable $7 million. That is a genuine surprise. So that that has been, you know, for those who know Pete, know his candidacy and know kind of the way he talks about politics, that he would do well is not a surprise that he would do that well, I think has been a surprise. So it makes sense that, that that would be talked about. But there there were a few folks out there, I think including Ryan Lizza from The New Yorker, who said, you know, this, you know, Pete Buttigieg. Well, he got kicked out of The New Yorker for you know, oh, yeah, yeah, the, sorry, lady, formally, the lady touching thing. He's at the that's es- right. at Esquire. Thank you very much. That's right. I appreciate the correction. Uh, yeah, right. So, right. Yeah. So Lizza, formerly of The New Yorker. Uh, posted a, a you know a, a point that you know Buttigieg just seven million dollars really makes Kamala's twelve look look bad by comparison. No, it doesn't. Kamala's number is extremely impressive. Pete's number is also really impressive. The backlash against this was to talk about the way that 
that the uh, that the media has covered uh, Pete Buttigieg, and they they have absolutely fallen in love with him, partly because he's new and different and weird and interesting, right? Like you can see this, right? Like there's all there's a whole bunch of stuff about him that just makes him attractive uh, as a uh, both and as to a give, candidate, but to also give her, as a media to story. give her credit. Liz Smith has done an absolutely phenomenal job. Yes, it's been a great rollout. Where he needs to be. Yeah, it's been a great rollout. So you can see why he would be such an appealing media figure. But the response has been both to uh, has been both to has been to talk about the way that he is being covered versus the way Kamala is being covered, which is not unreasonable. But also to to do down his to do down Pete's numbers to do to to trivialize him and what he has achieved here, what he achieved in Q one with the idea that like well you know the media loves to cover a, you know, loves to cover a white boy who underperformed Kamala well of course he underperformed Kamala he doesn't live in the bank the Democratic Party has a giant uh, has you know has basically a Scrooge McDuck gold vault that is Northern California and Kamala lives there. Which does not mean that what she that what she accomplished is not impressive. It's impressive as hell. But and I submit this to you, friends. It is possible for a lot of candidates to do really impressive things, and for all of that to be okay. Right? We are very very early in this. If we, you know, the, but the way that Kamala and Pete were set against each other, and their narratives were used not just to not just to praise them, but also to tear each other down, I think really set a chill down my spine. For sadly, the way that we have predicted this party primary is going to go, where no one can do anything good without it also reflecting poorly on everyone else. That's just not a realistic assessment of what happened in Q1. That's not a realistic assessment of what's going to happen for the rest of the cycle. Yeah, I just I just re- reloaded the page uh, on Axios that's been keeping track of how much everybody's raised. And they've now posted Cory Booker, who raised five point one million. So that's a little bit more than ten dollars. I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll like honestly, like taking what Frank just said about fundraising numbers and having built-in fundraising operations, et cetera, et cetera. It actually makes Bernie Sanders' number less impressive, and I think the fact that Elizabeth Warren still hasn't come out with her number is surprising. The other thing that I'm a bit surprised about is they. I would not have picked uh, Buttigieg and Harris to be the 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 folks that media pit each other against. Honestly, I would have expected like a lot more like woman against woman like comparison of like Warren and Harris or Gillibrand like to do that kind of stuff. But like those two, I never would have guessed. I never would have guessed that they would be like the the forces that would be put up against each other. I don't know why. Yeah, it's strange. I think some of it is that Pete is the most surprisingly has again is the biggest surprise. So people want mm-hmm. to talk about it. That seven million dollars, like if you're sort of looking at how people have done, like that seven is the is the big standout, right? Like mm-hmm. everything else, like Bernie raised eighteen million, that makes sense. Kamala raised twelve million, that makes sense. Booker raised five five million dollars, that makes sense given kind of how things have gone. Pete raised seven. Holy shit, that's a strange yeah. number, right? So of course they're going to talk about that, but then the fact that they use that against Kamala and yeah. not against Bernie. Or not right? against you know, or not against Booker or any of the other ones, that does tell us a little bit about that. That gives you a sense of of where all which is to say, like just because the, the because some of the concerns about how the media has covered Pete versus Kamala have have you know have, you know have been used to do down Pete, and I'm really I'm, I'm against that because what he achieved is stands I think for itself. Doesn't mean that those concerns of the media is unfairly covering her are wrong. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, it is, and, and that, that Lizza did that, I don't think is actually that big a surprise. Like that's, that's him all over. Uh, and I don't, but he wasn't the only one who was just like, oh, wow, like this makes Kamala look bad. If that's the case, it also makes Bernie look bad. It makes all yeah. of them look bad, but it, that's not the case. It doesn't make any of them look bad. Yeah. It makes Pete look really, really good, which is what his Q1 was. And also, if we think about this thing as a basketball tournament, Q1 is the shoot around beforehand. Yeah. Right? If right. you see someone just splashing threes crazily as Pete has been, that tells you something. They might be on fire for when the real game begins. But it's the shoot around beforehand. Everyone needs, including me, you can tell my blood pressure is spiking here. Everyone needs to calm the hell down. The game hasn't even goddamn started yet. Jesus Christ. That's very much how I get when people are like, Bernie's leading in the polls. I'm like, that's because everybody knows what his fucking name is. Like, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it means nothing, right? Like, he had a good shoot around too. Great. No, and then it's like, well, we'll have to like cart off the crazy lady to be laid down somewhere, you know, like gently stroking my hair so that I stop like losing my mind. Not at all. Go on. <laughs> keep, you know, keep telling Go off, Queen. No, but it's like, that, that's it. Like, Bernie had a great shoot around too. Fine. Awesome. Like, yeah. It's so early. Oh, Jesus Christ. It's so early in this whole process. And like, like, there are what, 15 new candidates since Q1 ended? Yeah, everyone's running. Yeah, get ready for the Tim Ryan candidacy we've all been craving. Michael Bennett's getting in. Uh, Swalwell got in. Um, I'm assuming the people crave mayonnaise. People crave so much mayonnaise, just buckets of it. Oh, gross! I'm too hungover. Don't talk like that. All right, <laughs> all right, uh, all right. So with that, um, since Maggie is going to get scared during the daylights, uh, during the daylight. Uh, after our conversation about being scaredy cats last week, I, I commend you, Maggie. For I know I'm going to see us and I'll let y'all know, or maybe not because who knows? I could be dead at the time. I don't know. Right. Who knows? <laughs> uh, but with that, why don't we, uh, why don't we cut this one? Uh, well, not really short, but why don't, why don't we cut it where, where we're at? Uh, I'm sure we'll have more to talk about a week hence, uh, whether, you know, British politics totally implodes uh, the Israeli election and potentially 16 to 25 new candidates in the democratic primary. Uh, so, uh, please do subscribe and rate us. Uh, it, it helps us in a variety of ways and gets us closer to some Casper mattress money, uh, which can pay for that extra large jumbo bucket of popcorn at the movies. Uh, you can follow Maggie at Maggie M zero one two Frank at Frank spring me at Ellie Jacobs and all of us at taking ship. And that's ship with a P as in, I don't even know, uh, puke. Cause hell yeah. Now we're talking. Yeah. Why? Now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with that, Frank, uh, are, are we taking ship this week somewhere? Oh, hell yeah. We're taking ship this week, buddy. You better fucking believe it. We're taking ship to, uh, to New York city friends, uh, because something world historic is happening. A UN backed partnership called UN habitat, uh, along with some private firms, uh, MIT and various other places are, exp- are advancing uh, and exploring a concept that because of global warming and rising sea levels, humanity will have to move to floating cities. Friends, it's happening. The great taking ship is in the offing. This, and there is some concern that this may result in uh, that, that these floating cities uh, will simply be playgrounds for the rich, uh, while, uh, while the global poor will be left on land. This must not be allowed to happen. We must go to agitate for an equitable and equal and a fair taking ship uh, as this taking ship has always been and will forever be. Humanity itself, um, we, we go forward now into a, the future is bright. 
the future is at sea, friends. Uh, we must embrace our aquatic future and forever show our contempt for the sea uh, by living in its own, by living in the ocean's own backyard. So, friends, we take ship now for New York to advance the great humanity-taking ship. Take care, everybody. <laughs>